Moses, in the end, is spiritually inclined by the guidance of Gabriel, not to grab the gold, but the fire, and thereby shows us what is truly valuable, not the glory affiliated with kingship, but perhaps, as Rabbi Michael Hatin suggests, the fire of God. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 124, The Throne Room, the Angel, and the Fiery Coal. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Several days ago, I had the opportunity to re-watch Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments with some wonderful friends of mine. It was only the 30th or 50th or 60th time I had seen it, and my friends were remarkably accepting of my habit of shouting out the lines from the script before they were set on the screen. Every time I watched this film, I noticed something different, and this time, it was one of the earliest scenes that struck me, where one of the pharaohs is informed by his advisors of a prediction. They say, Divine One, last night our astrologers saw an evil star enter into the house of Egypt. And then they add the meaning of this astrological signal. Among these slaves, they say, there is a prophecy of a deliverer who will lead them out of bondage. A star proclaims his birth. DeMille, ladies and gentlemen, did not make this up. He took this from earlier Jewish non-biblical texts, texts that were known to other artists as well. Thus, in London's National Gallery, one can encounter a painting by Nicholas Pusa depicting Moses as a baby trampling the crown of Pharaoh. This is taken from Josephus, which also served as a source for Cecil B. DeMille. Josephus describes how the astrologers of Egypt foresaw that a redeemer would arise in Israel and grew suspicious that Moses himself was the one foretold when, upon being presented to Pharaoh as a baby, he stamped on the diadem of the king of Egypt. Writing of Thirhuthus, which is the name that Josephus gives Pharaoh's daughter, Josephus tells us, quote, She put the infant into her father's hands, so he took him and hugged him close to his breast, and, on his daughter's account, in a pleasant way, put his diadem upon his head. But Moses threw it down to the ground, and, in a puerile mood, he wreathed it round and tread upon it with his feet, which seemed to bring along with it an evil presage concerning the kingdom of Egypt. But when the sacred scribe saw this, he was the person who foretold that his nativity would bring the dominion of that kingdom low. He made a violent attempt to kill him, and crying out in a frightful manner, he said, This, O king, this child is he of whom God foretold, that if we kill him we shall be in no danger. He himself affords an attestation to the prediction of the same thing, by his trampling upon thy government and treading upon thy diadem. Take him therefore out of thy way and deliver the Egyptians from the fear they are in about him, and deprive the Hebrews of the hope they have of being encouraged by him. But Thermuthis prevented him and snatched the child away. End quote. These are Josephus' words. Interestingly, in the rabbinic midrash, there is a story that is similar but also profoundly different. And this midrash is clearly a parallel of a story in the Bible about Isaiah, a story whose rabbinic interpretation teaches us about the very nature of leadership itself. Chapter 6 of Isaiah's book gives us the moment in which Isaiah was called as a prophet. He beholds the throne room of God in a vision seeing angelic figures, seraphim, surrounding the scene. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, 
having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. So we are told, on the face of it, what is occurring here is the sanctification of Isaiah for the task ahead. And it is, of course, that. But the rabbis see something else as well. After Isaiah proclaims that he is part of a people with unclean lips, an angel, as we just read, places a coal on the mouth of the prophet in order, we are told, to purge his sin. What sin? For the rabbis, it was Isaiah's very reference to the unworthiness of Israel that required cleansing by heavenly fire. I dwell, Isaiah said, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This, for the rabbis, required punishment, the placing of a fiery coal on his mouth, because a prophet must always express love for his people, first and foremost. In other words, the coal sanctifies and obligates the prophet's mouth to speak good for Israel. Thus does Isaiah emerge as the great prophet of hope, who always joins his predictions of destructions with glorious visions of redemption yet to come. It is with this in mind that we can look at another version of the tale of baby Moses before Pharaoh, one which exists prominently in the Midrash. The Midrash Rabbah describes how Pharaoh's soothsayers and scribes sense something sensitive about this Hebrew baby that was Moses, and worried that he may ultimately spell the doom of Egypt. Whereas some sought to have his life ended, one advisor in Pharaoh's court suggested a test that two luminous items, gold and glowing coal, be placed before his child. If he grabbed the gold, that would be a sign that the child ultimately sought to make the crown of Egypt his own. Baby Moses did reach for the gold, which would have resulted in his death. But the angel Gabriel moves Moses' hand and has him take the coal instead, which Moses then places on his lips, injuring his mouth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, however literally one reads this story, it is clear that a certain message about the nature of Moses is being taught to us. Moses, in the end, is spiritually inclined by the guidance of Gabriel not to grab the gold but the fire, and thereby shows us what is truly valuable, not the glory affiliated with kingship, but perhaps, as Rabbi Michael Hatin suggests, the fire of God. This is what is truly special. The Midrash is giving us here its own uniquely Jewish version of words placed by Shakespeare in the mouth of Henry V at Agincourt, where he says, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not of men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. For Henry, royalty is not gold, but rather honor, which seems to refer to fame of battle courageously fought. But this is not what is most important for Moses. It is rather the fire of God that is truly essential. The angel teaches Moses at a young age not to covet gold, but rather luminous sanctity. But as Rabbi Hatin also notes, the Midrashic tale of Moses and his coal has a scriptural parallel in Isaiah, who himself experiences an angel in a throne room, God's throne room, an angel who directs a coal to the mouth of the prophet of God. What is the meaning of this link? Rabbi Hatin has his own approach, but I would like to suggest that in understanding the meaning of the Midrash, we must first see how the rabbis read this Isaiah story. The previous prophet who experienced wondrous encounters with the Almighty of this sort, Elijah, had to be replaced because he grew angry at Israel's constant failures. Isaiah, as the rabbis teach us, has to be taught by the angel to reflect love for Israel. The coal enters his mouth in order to punish him for his criticism of God's people and to purify him for the future. If that is the case, and if in the Midrashic tale Gabriel the angel moves a coal into baby Moses' mouth, then we can understand this Midrash 
as communicating to us that among other incredible achievements, one of the sources of Moses' greatness was his exhibition of love for his people, his constant pleading for their forgiveness. The rabbinic description of the sin of Isaiah was later cited by Maimonides in one of his earliest epistles regarding a group of Jews who had outwardly accepted a different faith under the persecution and terror of the Almohads. For this, one rabbi sought to ban them from the Jewish community to which they sought to return. Maimonides blazes forth with righteous rage and argues that it is this other rabbi who has failed profoundly because he failed to show compassion and love for members of the Jewish people. Citing the rabbinic description of Isaiah, citing the story of Elijah, and even finding one moment where for the rabbis Moses was early on punished for not showing sufficient faith in Israel. Maimonides does not mince words in telling his audience what he thinks about this other rabbi. He writes, and I cite the translation published by Leon Stitzkin in the journal Tradition, quote, Now if such punishment was meted out to great pillars of Judaism like Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and ministering angels because they maligned the people of Israel, we imagine the penalty awaiting an ordinary insignificant simpleton who with a loose tongue dared to assail whole communities, their scholars, their disciples, priests and Levites, calling them transgressors, wicked men, heathens unfit to bear witness, and deniers of the Lord of Israel. How much more severe his punishment will be, considering he stated those accusations in writing with his own hands. For alas, the oppressed did not rebel against God because of evil passions or lust. They strayed from the law not because of a relentless pursuit of high position or evil passions, as the prophet exclaimed, because from the swords they fled from the drawn sword and from the bent bow and from the pressure of war. Does not this man know that God does not forsake or abandon the innocent transgressors? End quote. Thus, Maimonides utilizes the Isaiah story in order to reflect about how a rabbi ought to act. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has pointed out in an essay titled To Be a Prophet for the People, the name of the rabbi that Maimonides criticized has long been lost But Maimonides is revered to this day, and he teaches us about the nature of leadership. Here are a couple of passages from Rabbi Sachs' piece. Quote, This epistle is a masterly example of that most difficult of moral challenges, to combine prescription and compassion. Maimonides leaves us in no doubt as to what he believes Jews should do, but at the same time, he is uncompromising in his defense of those who fail to do it. He does not endorse what they have done, but he defends who they are. He asks us to understand their situation. He gives them grounds for self-respect. He holds the doors of the community open. One could be forgiven for thinking that so complex a moral strategy would read like a study in ambivalence and equivocation. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are few documents in Jewish literature that so blaze with religious passion as Maimonides' epistle. And Rabbi Sachs further adds, The Midrash and Maimonides set before us another model. A prophet hears not one imperative but two, prescription and compassion a love of truth, and an abiding solidarity with those for whom that truth has become eclipsed. To preserve tradition and at the same time the unity of those addressed by that tradition is the difficult, necessary task of religious leadership in an unreligious age. End quote. After the coal touches his mouth, Isaiah now claims his destiny. In verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Isaiah will from now on Yes, castigate the people, but only at the command of God. And he will couch this castigation in exquisite descriptions of God's love for the people of Israel and with his descriptions of the redemption that is yet to come. It will be he who, as we will see tomorrow, will tell us a great deal about the future deliverer, the Messiah. For now, we remember Isaiah's first vision 
and inspire ourselves with the image of the fiery coal of the angel of God, which reminds us to bear a warmth and a love for the Jewish people in our minds and our hearts. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week. Signing off.